This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. What's going on, Ann Kemp? This is Justin Gibney, and this is the Church Politics Podcast, uh, and we are doing it live. So usually the Church Politics Podcast you can listen to us, but during the COVID-19 crisis, myself, Michael Ware, and our special guest, uh, Chris Butler, have been doing this live for y'all. So, and Ken, we're happy to be back with you, uh, have, another, have a good chance to have another conversation about politics from a Christian worldview. And so we're just going to jump into it. We're, we're not going to take up too much of your time, but there are a lot of issues uh, that we hadn't talked about in the last couple of weeks. We want to get to that today. So thank you again for joining, for joining us. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and get to it. The first thing I want to talk about is the Churches Helping Churches Challenge. As many of you know, over uh, just over about a month ago, the In Campaign started leading an effort to actually help smaller churches get through this crisis. A lot of smaller churches, once the, the lockdown became clear and they knew they weren't going to be able to have services, it became very uh, clear to them that they were going to need some help getting through this crisis. And so we created the COVID-19 Church Relief Fund. We have raised over $700,000 for that fund. And I, and I believe uh, by early next week, we may be over a million dollars for that fund. And that's going to help smaller churches to give them grants to make it through COVID-19. This is huge. I, I don't know of anything that's been done like this before, uh, but we have some great uh, teammates that, uh, and partners that came along with us to really make this happen and it's been growing. In fact, we had a, a, a simulcast benefit uh, last Friday, so just a week ago, and we teamed up with uh, to the Together Generation, the Pulse team, uh, Kirk Franklin, Lecrae, uh, Toby Mack, a whole bunch of people came on, and we ended up raising uh, over $200,000 in that one night, over two hours, for this uh, Churches Helping Churches Challenge. What you're going to see is that this challenge is actually going to expand and it's going to become regional. So you have some folks up in Michigan, some folks in Philadelphia, probably Chicago, who are also going to join this effort. And you're going to see it really grow. We're hoping that it may even turn into something that goes on post-COVID because we know there are a lot of churches in need before this COVID stuff even happens. So we will keep you posted on that. But the AND campaign is proud to kind of have catalyzed the vision and then teamed up with a lot of great, uh, a lot of groups that were just happy to get involved uh, to help out churches who were hurting during, during this time. So again, a lot of stuff to talk about, brothers. Uh, we might as well jump into it. The first thing that I wanted to hit on, though, was this Biden uh, vice president search, right? So he's going to select a vice president soon. Everybody is really interested in this. I think there's a feeling, and it could be wrong, that if Biden were to win, that he would likely be a one-term president, which puts, puts whoever his vice president is going to be in a position you know, of strength among anybody else they would be running against. And so this is a big deal. One announcement that he's already made is that he has promised that it's going to be a, a woman. So he will have a woman as his 
uh, as the first, uh, you know, as his vice president. And we will see, uh, we'll see how that goes. Now, there has been a strong campaign, as I'm sure you two saw, for this to be an African-American woman, right? So we saw some videos and there are a lot of strong advocates, advocates who have said, hey, this needs to be an African-American woman uh, to make sure that, you know, uh, you kind of reward some of the folks, the demographic who has meant so much to uh, the Democratic Party. Uh, and so that has been heard. I don't know if that, that'll be followed. We'll have to see. Uh, there's been a lot of names that have come up uh, and a lot of changes that are made. So, you know, there's one person, I think, Stacey Abrams, who has really kind of been uh, kind of promoting herself, putting herself out there and saying, hey, I should be the vice president. I think other people have been doing so behind the scenes. Uh, uh, Stacey Abrams has been uh, more forthright with that. Some criticism has come from that. Some people don't see it as a problem. Uh, earlier today, I saw that Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren, apparently kind of changed her tune when it came to uh, Medicare for All because she wants to be the vice president. And so, so before she was saying, hey, you know, Medicare for All or nothing. Now I think she's toned that down a little bit so that maybe she might have a chance to step into that place. A lot of great choices. I don't think anybody really denies that there aren't a lot of choices that are qualified. Who he will choose is going to be interesting. We know something that will play into it is the election and who he thinks may help him in this election. Uh, so there are a lot of names out there. Uh, some folks that come to mind for me are, are Val Demings. Uh, she is a, a Florida Democrat. She's in the House of Representatives. Uh, she's a former police chief. Uh, she is an African-American female. And to me, you know, I haven't heard all that much about her. But when I looked her up and did some research, she comes off as a, as a lot more serious than some, of, than some of the other candidates that have been really putting their name forward. And I, I, I like, you know, I think she has a strength that could be really helpful to um, Biden. Someone else that I think is uh, Amy Klobuchar. I'm, I'm guessing I may hear more about that name from, from Michael. Uh, but, I, but I think that may be a good choice. And then you have, you know, my mayor, who is Atlanta Mayor Keisha Bottoms, whose name has come up come up uh, pretty strongly too. Michael, talk to me a little bit about your thoughts when it comes to this VP choice, what what it means and how, what, you know, what impact will it have on the election? Well, it's going to be a major indication of uh, how the Biden campaign is viewing this race. There's been a big debate in the Democratic Party about whether you win elections primarily through persuasion or primarily through mobilization. I think that's been mostly an unhelpful uh, debate. I, I don't think you have to go either or, but that's how things are going to be framed up a bit. And the media is going to report on the decision and a lot of advocacy groups are going to report on Biden's decision through that kind of framework. Is it a progressive or conservative swing? Is it about persuasion or mobilization? Uh, and so, you know, Biden campaign is going to have to navigate those dynamics, not just from the general electorate, but within the Democratic Party itself. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has picked up a lot of steam over the last couple of weeks, primarily because of COVID and some of the former vice president's indications that he believes that this is now a moment for a big presidency, an FDR-like presidency, as New York Mag uh, suggested. And so it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Now, remember, he doesn't have to announce this pick until July. He doesn't have to announce until the convention in August. And so one way to look at this is they're still in unify the Democratic Party appeal to the progressive wing mode uh, since they just recently got out of the battle with Bernie. It'll be interesting to see what 
groundwork is laid as we get closer to this announcement to maybe pivot things back in uh, the direction of someone who's more in line with uh, sort of Biden's profile as a moderate candidate. As far as candidates I'm looking at, I am looking at Vale Demings. I think I think she's a very interesting, uh, very interesting choice. Uh, Terry Sewell uh, in Alabama is a really uh, interesting person. And uh, Justin, you know I'm a fan of Karen Bass, uh, who's the chair of the CBC right now, Congresswoman uh, out of California. Uh, I do like Amy Klobuchar. I think she's uh, she would uh, support Biden's base when it comes to uh, especially uh, senior citizens and moderate voters. There has been some criticism of Klobuchar for not going aggressively enough after younger voters and after black voters. And so that'll be a dynamic that, that will be wrestled with. I, I'd also say, you know, Susan Rice is a formidable person I, I, uh, in, in a sort of... Um, I, I, I would be concerned that you'd be welcoming sort of uh, a relitigation of Benghazi and some of those controversies, but she's certainly someone who would have the standing to to have such a to have such a role. I think she she'd be well suited for the job, uh, but but she's certainly going to be under consideration. And then just a few other names, you know, Tammy Duckworth uh, out of Illinois, out of your state. She is. Uh, formidable. She has an interesting biography, and he's an interesting person to look at. And then Governor Whitmer from Michigan continues to try and keep her name in play. I tend to think that you know, if you're gonna, if, if you try and slate these candidates sort of in in uh, pairings, you know, I, I tend to choose Klobuchar over Dr., over uh, Whitmer. I tend to choose uh, Harris over Abrams. I tend to choose Demings over Sewell. Um, it, it's just you don't know what kind of metrics and what kind of decisions the campaign is using internally. You know, we can look at the race from our perspective, but it, it, the Biden campaign maybe maybe looking at you know Arizona is the is the hinge for all of this, our entire strategy, and so they may uh, they may be going for a very like tactical strike electorally speaking. Um, just based on internal numbers and how they see things shaping up. And then I just, I just add, you know, uh, Biden more than most is going to be sensitive to what kind of governing partner this running mate, his running mate's going to be, particularly because of these dynamics, this expectation that he'll be a one-term president. No president, no matter whether they consider themselves a transition president, like Biden has sometimes referred to himself, wants someone in that number two job who from day one is planning their own presidential campaign and not being loyal. And so that, that sort of governing partnership is going to be critical. Right. Chris, what are your thoughts? I certainly think the... Um the decision is really important. And Michael talked about the uh, tricks that they use on the inside. I do go back to that question about African-American women. Um, I, I wonder about the early decision to, to come out and say um, yeah. that, that we're going to do a woman uh, in general, just simply because, you know, the African-American community not only has contributed a lot over the years to the Democratic Party, uh, the African-American community has contributed a ton to this campaign. Um, you go to, uh, to South Carolina and the uh, Representative uh, Claiborne and 
the African-American community uh, was that firewall that the campaign talked about from the beginning. Um, and I do think that if you go to a, a, a VP choice that is not an African-American person, you're going to deal with a significant letdown uh, in the African-American community. And I'm talking about from the grassroots all the way up to some of those grass tops like uh, like Representative Clyborne. And that could jeopardize that mobilization uh, component. So that that piece is really important. And, and we've heard a lot of good names in, in there. Um, you know, uh, I, I think we, we did mention uh, uh, Senator Harris, but I think she's uh, a real important person to consider. Um, you also think about lifting up mayors like Mayor Bottoms. Um, I, I haven't heard that that anybody's talking to Mayor Lightfoot in uh, in Chicago right now, but she's certainly quickly raising her national profile in the midst of this uh, COVID-19. Um, there are folks out west, uh, you know, uh, Mexico governor, uh, I think Michelle uh, Grisham, um, when you think about that kind of tactical get to body out in one of those, those western states and uh, that's going to hold it down out there. Um, so it, it, there are a lot of interesting questions. Uh, but I, I think I, I've been thinking a lot about that African-American component um, because I, I can feel the community almost holding its breath for that kind of letdown. Um, and, and that could be something difficult to deal with as you get closer to the general. Okay. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we'll see what happens. Uh, we know there are several considerations based on you know the, what, whatever's happening in the campaign, whatever they, they feel internally is their weakness, which is not always uh, communicated to us uh, on the outside. So uh, we will see that. Um, I feel like, you know, you see Obama stepping up too. And so if it is not an African-American female, I think you'll have a lot of people who are, you know, who are on the Democratic side stepping up and saying, you know what, that's okay. There will be a lot of black people in the administration. We need to push forward because there is a bigger issue that we're dealing with here. And let's not let this uh, separate us at a time when we need to come together. It's going to be a tough choice. And, and to Michael's point, maybe he's better off not making it immediately. Some people say, no, make it sooner. That way people can get over it. I have time to get over it because somebody's going to be upset. And you do throw out names like Susan Rice. I, I, I'll go out there and say, I think the chances of it being Susan Rice are, are fairly small. Uh, I think her name got thrown out. In my opinion, she kind of bit the bullet or took the bullet for Hillary Clinton uh, on, a, on that Benghazi stuff. And, and so I don't see Biden wanting to bring that in there. I think it's nice and it's good to put her name out there. Maybe it revives her a little bit uh, for something else she may want to do. It's hard to see her her jumping in now, but but you never know. I mean, her name is out there. She's I've seen her top ten. I I tend to think that's just them kind of throwing her out there as a name out of respect. But uh, she did some some dirty work that I don't know is uh, far enough in the past for people to forget it or want to bring it up right now. We'll, you know, we'll have to see. So an interesting conversation. Any other thoughts just about timing? Do you guys? I mean, would you prefer that he he do it early or or that he wait? What do you guys think? Where's the strategy there? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough balance, especially in this COVID moment where he's not able to travel around and build momentum in that way. Uh, there is a different argument that you could make that an earlier announcement would allow him to uh, allow the campaign to raise money faster, that it would allow um allow them to um to sort of fill up the 
the the media a bit between now and August. Uh, conventionally, though, campaigns have tended to wait a little bit closer to the convention to get a bit of a bump rising into the convention, into the real general election campaign. Um, it, 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 it's so it's so hard to tell. I mean, I, I think a, a big part of it is it depends on who he picks. You know, if, if it's someone who has a huge fundraising network that you want to tap into right away that you're not able to access fully uh, until they're elevated to, you know, this kind of position, maybe announce it early. But if it's someone who think will, will give a boost electorally that will burnish Biden's image, uh, then maybe maybe you wait a little bit closer to the convention. Got, got you. No, I think I think you make a good point there. There's a lot of considerations. I don't know that I wouldn't want to be the person making that decision. Chris, what are you thinking about timing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh what what she said is is very important i think it's, it's all about who who that person is i mean if it's if, if it's one of these folks who's kind of like a mayor who uh the campaign is going to try to lift up and uh mobilize progressives maybe it, it's a little bit earlier so that person can get out be visible uh and 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 do the kind of grassroots work um if it's uh if it's more in the traditional frame i mean if, if you end up going with uh you know, Senator Harris and somebody like that, Klobuchar, then I think they, they do take it, you know, take it closer to the uh, to the convention and, and, and get that bump. Yeah. Well, let's go on to the COVID response. There's been so much media focused on how people are, are responding to COVID. Um, governors and leaders are responding to COVID. Um, let's kind of just talk about responses. I don't know if you guys saw, but within the last week, there was a big article on ProPublica, which was saying that the response from New York, particularly Governor uh, Cuomo, was not as great as people thought it was. Initially, there was a lot of talk and he kind of got a hero's welcome because he communicated well about what was going on with COVID in New York. But at the end of the day, that communication, uh, uh, the, the, the writer in this article is saying, wasn't as great and, and his decision making wasn't as good as for instance, uh, Governor Newsom, uh, Gavin Newsom in uh, California. One of the issues that was brought up in this article uh, was that Kumo uh, made a decision early on. Number one, they, they, they kind of reacted a, a little late. And then he made a decision to actually bring uh, those who were infected into nursing homes, right? That nursing homes were kind of opened up for that, which they're saying was a terrible decision because the folks in no nursing homes were the people that were the most vulnerable uh, to that. Right. Then you have the opposite kind of react. Then you have other reactions. As you know, the governor in Florida, Governor DeSantis, opened things up and opened the beaches up, got a lot of criticism. He's now claiming uh, that he was right the whole time, that they've uh, you know maintained pretty low infection rates. Hospitalizations are still down. And so he's saying that he made the right decision. A lot of back and forth between this. I know there were some interesting decisions, decisions made by the governor in Illinois, too. And just want to kind of get you guys' thoughts on what's going on uh, with these leaders and, and you know, where are we at with this and what kind of impact does it have just on the whole conversation when it comes to COVID and, and our, our leaders? Michael? Yeah, well, I mean, a, a few thoughts. One that has just struck me is uh, how detached our political campaign process is from the from judging the kind of skills talents, temperament that are needed for a crisis like this. Like, like I'm not sure our election process, our campaign process, uh, especially for a, 
governors, mayors is is set up to to judge candidates on the basis that uh, is needed for a big test like this. So, so that would be one. Uh, one example of that is a major theme in that ProPublica piece, which which I I'd second your recommendation on that, is the difference between the animosity and unhealthy competition between Cuomo and de Blasio in New York and the healthy partnership that Gavin Newsom and London Breed have in California and how helpful that was in allowing them to coordinate. I mean, in some ways, London Breed, the San Francisco mayor, had a better relationship with de Blasio than Cuomo had with de Blasio. At least London Breed was sharing plans, whether they were used or not. <laughs> you know, there was a there was a spirit of of trying to help, and and you don't always get that with Cuomo and de Blasio. But are, are New York voters going to the polls thinking? Uh, not not just you know is is this person compelling is uh, are, are is is their policy on my most important issue uh, in the right place but you know does this person play well with others uh, is this person uh, going to um, keep the interests of the state uh, or or the 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 jurisdiction wherever they're serving you know uh, top of mind even if it com- conflicts with their political interests and and I'm not I'm not sure that. Those are top of mind issues for voters. And so what's really clear, there's this interesting section of the, of the article where uh, they quote Cuomo, and it's not clear exactly where he's quoted from, so I wasn't quite sure on all the sourcing for it, but they suggest that Cuomo and his administration w- said something along the lines of, you know, we followed your models. Like like we we, we, we listened and we we followed the model, but over in, over in San Francisco and in California, they were saying, there is no data that makes these decisions for you. These are not just scientific decisions. These are ethical, moral, public leadership decisions. And so to, um, you know, that taking on of responsibility for making decisions and then trying to sort of cast off as, oh, oh, you know, I just listened to to the experts, did what they told me to do. And, you know, if it didn't work out, then you know I don't know what to tell you. People are trying to uh, assert control over a situation that doesn't lend itself to control and sort of uh, uh, perfection in knowing how to address address things. And that's been that's been telling on the political level. It's also just telling in our personal lives the the steps that people are taking to to try and feel in control of a situation that that uh, sometimes feels uh, often feels. Uh, like it's completely out of, out of your control. Uh, so, so yeah, those are those are some of my my main thoughts. Yeah, and I think we all need to keep in mind these are very tough decisions. Yeah, uh, I, I don't think any of these uh, governors that we're talking about or mayors that we're talking about made a decision with the point of hurting people. Right. Uh, to say, you know what, I really don't care about the people. Let's do this. Uh, you, you hear that some of that rhetoric. I seriously doubt any of these leaders made a decision that way. It's actually was said in the article that De Blasio was paying attention to his expert one of his closest experts and the expert was just wrong yeah uh, exactly right. reason, yeah and that's why all the rhetoric about just follow what the experts say well the experts don't always agree so leadership can't happen that way a mayor although they should listen to the science and listen to the experts there are other considerations and that may be the primary consideration but there are other considerations that leaders have to ta- have to use so all that talk it sounds good but anybody that's been close to leadership knows it's just not that easy because people have a whole lot of different opinions Chris, I know you've been close to, to government and how leaders make decisions. What are your thoughts about some of the decisions made by these governors 
and your own governor took some interesting positions. Yeah, certainly uh, here in, in this state, you saw a lot of this stuff playing out. And um, it, it's sometimes a, a little less clear when you're sitting in it how much uh, national attention is getting. Um, it, it's just been a challenging thing. Uh, I, I do think that from a, a political perspective, I've been looking at this not not only as like what are voters going to have uh, top of mind next election, but what kind of uh, fodder are you creating uh, and material for all the folks who get paid to put stuff on the voters' mind uh, come election day? Um, and you know, I'd look at some of the the speeches. I mean, with, with governors standing up and, and the ProPublica article, I think nailed it. When, you, when they when they highlight this idea of right now you st you stand up and you say well you got to listen to the experts uh, you got to listen to this person I'm taking my cues from this but you know you're creating hundreds and hundreds of sound bites of yourself saying you don't want to make a decision uh, and I just think about it as as a political professional man you would love to have that tape um, when it comes to election time, if, if you want to run somebody as kind of like a decision maker, a leader um, who, who gets in and, and, and listens to teams and makes decisions. Um, some of the things that, that certain governors have done in the name of safety, I'm not against it. But, I mean, Georgia opened up three weeks ago. You know, has Georgia seen this dramatic spike? In, uh, in, in cases and, and deaths and all that stuff. Right now, the answer to that question is no. Um, and, you know, for those of us who, who know kind of how these trends go, that there are not a lot of uh, black folks who live in Chicago, who don't have family, who live in Atlanta. Um, and and, and when, when, you, uh, when you're looking down, down south and other place, places uh, and things are beginning to open, and the line that's still coming from the leadership is listen to the science. You know, we're trying to be safe. I mean, people want to be safe, but, you know, how long do people continue to listen to that? Um, and the last observation that I'll make uh, is when, when you do something like, I think one of the worst things that has happened here in Chicago is uh, Mayor Lightfoot had a press conference uh, standing on literally standing in the middle of the street on the west side, um, saying that like you know if you have a party and you're violating the thing, uh, you know the order we're going to arrest you and we will put you in jail. Um, it's like man, I think her political team would love to have that that tape back because again, it, it doesn't just sit there top of mind for folks because the news cycle moves along so quickly, but when election time comes that tape is there and there are really skilled people who know how to make that look really bad. Um, I, I think about it from that perspective, the, a lot of material has been created that I think a lot of folks are going to want back come election time. Yeah, that's a good point. As far as Georgia, you mentioned Georgia, uh, you know, there, there has been some, some questions about how uh, numbers are being reported. However, uh, very few people can say that some of the projections of what would happen to Georgia actually happened once, once things opened up. We'll see if that's main, maintained. I see, I see our friend Kiko saying three weeks is, is quite a bit, bit of time to tell, and I think she's right. Uh, we should take something from what we already know on this. And then one of the other things that, I, that I, I've seen happen was 
you know, I think we just overestimated how people in certain demographics or people in certain situations, how long they'll be able to social distance. We've heard a lot of conversation about just social distancing fatigue. And I've said before, for people who don't have Netflix and, you know, automatic deposit, right, direct deposit coming to them, social distancing and just sitting at home or for people who are living in an abusive home, those things are pretty hard. And I think coming from some more progressive sources, we may have overestimated how long people can do that or even how long that it's healthy to do that, right? So we have two health issues. I talked to a sister who who, uh, works in churches with therapy and mental health and things of that nature. And Monique said, she said, look, this is not healthy to sit, you know, there's health issues as far as exposure to the virus. There's also health issues as far as social distancing for people who are in abusive situations, all different types, or just not being around anybody. Uh, Those are things we have to to deal with too. But I would point out again, this is the first time we've dealt with a lot of these things. So, so all the great wisdom that people had wasn't didn't always have a great time. But Chris, it sounds like you had a, another comment. Yeah, I mean, I I I I think that you know that point is so important about how long can people do this. Uh, I've I've had in quarantine. You know, we all had Mother's Day. Um, I've had two birthdays. Uh, two of my sons had birthdays, uh, and. You know, just trying to explain to a three-year-old that he cannot hug his grandmother or go in his aunt and uncle's house um, is it is tough. And I think that is what the the conversation about reopening really should center around. It's not just about the economy. It's about having to say to your kid, "No, no, don't hug grandma." Um, those things are are not healthy. Uh, is not how life's supposed to be. And, and people, I don't know if, what is the stamina to endure it, but certainly the politics get more difficult the more different places in the country open up. And, you know, if, if it's not this, this huge outbreak, and I, and I appreciate that three weeks is not a long enough time to, to uh, an analysis, except for the fact that three weeks ago, everybody was saying three weeks was going to be the time that would tell the story. Um, so there was there was a good article in the uh, Chicago Tribune that, for the most part, has backed the Illinois governor. Uh, but there was a great article where even the Tribune board took the governor to task with moving the goalposts, right? Uh, so if three weeks is not enough time, you can't say three weeks we're going to see it and, and then come back three weeks later. And say, well, it wasn't enough time. So, it's, like you said, Justice, it's very complicated, and, and we got to give a, a lot of grace. But the the political guy in me can't uh, help but to think, man, people are making really great commercials against themselves. Yeah, it's it's, it's a lot that's going to come out of this good and bad for for a lot of different politicians, uh, and so we will see. But but I think you hit on the head. There's a certain amount of grace, always a, a, a good amount of accountability, though, too. Right? A bad decision is a bad decision. So we have to be realistic about it, but also say, well, if you had an opportunity to make a different decision, a reason to make a better decision, then we would know uh, to Sister Carla's point, three weeks isn't a whole lot of time. Uh, But it is the time that a lot of people who are attacking these folks, to Chris's point, said that we would need to know that the world, that that Georgia had blown up and that everybody, you know, basically was affected. Uh, Time will still tell, though. I mean, I think, you know. Uh, there, there's, there's other indicators, and we'll see if if Kemp survives this, if DeSantis survives this, 
if Illinois governor and so on, we will see that. But, but I'm hoping that we all find a better place within these next few weeks and that we move at, at a pace that makes sense. And that is considering a number of factors. I really think that's what people want to see. So uh, to be continued, right? There, there's a lot coming to us and we'll, we'll keep our eye on it. The next thing I wanted to talk about kind of comes out of the governor's race in Georgia. So we actually have two governor's races uh, going on in Georgia. So it's going to be very interesting. One of them uh, is is getting getting pretty heated, uh, Michael and Chris. And so on one side of the governor's race, we have, um, you know, someone who is pretty much a, a recent incumbent, who is Senator Kelly Leffler. Uh, and Kelly Leffler was chosen uh, by uh, Governor Kemp to sit in the seat. Uh, and so she hasn't been there very long, but very quickly she found herself in a good amount of, well, with a, with some allegations surrounding her. I don't want to say she's in trouble because they are allegations, but there is a talk that she may have used information that she received as a senator to uh, influence how she was trading on the, on the stock market. Uh, if that, in fact, happened, uh, that is a huge uh, issue that she's really going to have, have to deal with. The idea that someone would only be in office for, I don't know if it was even a year, and to do some take information and to use it that way. Now, this was information about COVID. So basically, they had a briefing about COVID. That information was used. Some are alleging that information was used to actually, um, you know, how it, it, it impacted how she dealt with her stocks, right? So either she sold stocks or she bought different stocks, either her or her husband or group she was with. I want to be very clear. She's claiming that that's not what happened. But these allegations are out there. There are some coincidences that people say, well, that just doesn't smell good. And so on one end, you have to deal with that. Uh, if there's any validity to, the, validity to that, that's going to be problematic and it needs to be looked into very seriously. I think it's Senator Barr uh, has already come, you know, come into a lot of criticism for the same thing. And so we will see how uh, all this stuff works out. But then here's on the other end. On the other end, we have a Reverend uh, Warnock who is running. He is the pastor of the church that used to be co-pastored by Ebenezer Baptist Church, which used to be co-pastored by uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. So this is one of the you know most famous churches, you know African-American churches, I would say, probably in the nation uh, and, and still a very important church to the city of Atlanta. Uh, and so Re Reverend Ralph Warnock, uh, Warnock has, is running for, for that seat. You don't often see uh, uh, a member of the clergy running for a, a Senate seat. And so this is interesting. I'll have to say that, you know, I've, I've admired the work that he's done with voters' rights. Uh, he worked very closely with um, uh, Stacey Abrams and really got a lot of people uh, in, in Georgia, made sure that they were uh, registered to vote. And they took a lot of time doing that. And so I think he deserves a hats off for that. But there was an article that came out in the AGC, AJC, I think it was yesterday or the day before, where basically it was saying that he's been endorsed by a lot of uh, pro-choice um, pro groups. So a lot of the pro-choice leftward groups in Atlanta and around the country have endorsed his, his candidacy. Now, that endorsement doesn't come without uh, a certain viewpoint. And so it was very clear that in the article, uh, his views on abortion, that he was pro-choice, that he didn't make any qualifications to the Democratic agenda when it came to the abortion issue. And then for me, and I'll let everybody else speak, for me, that, that's really hard to, 
to, to accept, uh, to be a member of the clergy, to be a Christian in general, and accept the democratic platform when it comes to abortion without any qualification, without any challenge to it, I think is very unfortunate. Uh, I think it, to be thoughtful at all, uh, you know, to see how far they've gone with this conversation, whether it's uh, late term abortions, all the things that have come into this, the Hyde Amendment, all these different conversations to not say, well, you know, I may not say I may not be saying it's, it should be illegal, but I do think these, you know, these specific policies make sense to do none of that. Just to say, hey, I'm happy to to support, um, you know, a, a woman's right to choose, which is rhetoric that we always hear. But it's a deeper issue than just that was really disappointing to me. And I think a lot of people in conversations I've been having with other pastors were really just disappointed that that stance will be taken with no qualification, no additional information, no pushback. And I'm hoping that he will come out and say something because that's an interesting position to take. Chris, what are your thoughts on, you know, a clergyman or a Christian in general kind of accepting this uh, pro-choice agenda without anything attached to it? It concerns me a lot. And here's why. Um, I, I've been involved in some different experiences, I'll say, with the uh, with the party. And it is such a hardline issue. Um, where it really is, in, in my experience, uh, just how you said it, just a no room for nuance, uh, no room for you know critiquing a certain platform. You, you kind of drink the whole cup. And the idea that we would do that is difficult for me because not even to try to negotiate what I think is mostly a false choice between uh, pro-life and pro-choice because life not the opposite of choice and choice is not the opposite of life. Um, you know, you, you certainly as, as a, as a Christian, I don't know how you come down as pro-abortion, right? Now, what kind of policies, uh, you know, ultimately bring down the rates of, right? Because the, the idea here is, control uh, a person's choice. The idea is to protect lives. I think there's healthy debate around uh, what kinds of po policies accomplish that aim. Uh, and, and there are certain um, uh, uh, arguments that, that I've heard and made a, a, around, you know, both sides being able to, to really adjust how you approach this issue of abortion. But the idea that a that, you, that you're getting all these endorsements. I don't know this for sure. And like you said, Justin, we don't know what additional comments and things are coming. But in my experience, if you're getting all these endorsements, uh, at least the expectation, taking the full position that there is no nuance, there is no room to, to, or to disagree on any point. Um, and I, I, I just get concerned about how far that goes. I know in, in, in Illinois, where we've had really loose abortion law for a long time, there's now conversation about, you know, coming at parental notification. And do we, do we need parental notification? Um, I mean, so how far does it go? And where is the room to ever say, wait, let's talk about this? No, it's good. Michael? Yeah, I mean, so... You know, part of what I what I see here. Well, for, first of all, this is a long-standing position for Dr. Warnock, so he's made his views clear on this. That's how some of the endorsements were were phrased. He did some 
sex education work early on in his ministry and they're they're right part of the whole sense you get from this is both him and democratic allies trying to say oh you know he's a pastor but he's he's an okay one you know he, he he's he, he's he's in line with with uh, with progressives, you don't got to worry about him, and that's that's some of the overtone I'm I'm getting with this. And politically, you know, uh, he he may um, uh, th that might be be uh, necessary. I think one danger he's going to have is he he approaches uh, these he's approaching this campaign and he's approaching policy issues generally with such moral language and such a moral approach that there's going to be uh, an expectation that he'll advance pro, uh, his pro-choice views, not just in a uh, sort of neutral kind of, you know, I think it's, uh, uh, he's going to be expected to make a moral argument for access to abortion. And, and uh, that's that's going to be that that's going to be, I think, uh, difficult, especially in a general. But even in a primary, I think there there's going to be a lot of issues with 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 that in Georgia. Democrat Democratic voters are used to hearing language about uh, sort of it's not the government's role. It's not. But, but it'll if, if he starts using language of reproductive justice and and that those kind, that kind of rhetoric, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays. Uh, even even in Atlanta, not even talking about outside of the city, uh, you know, it's uh, I think it's going to be a real test for Christian voters in Georgia, for Christian Democratic voters in Georgia, and and the test is, does Dr. Warnock get a pass? Because he's a pastor of such a historic congregation, because he's he uses language like us, he's familiar with scripture like us. Um, and do we overlook some policy issues, or do do we say he's not running to be pastor anymore? He's running to uh, be uh, have a vote on policy, and that's what we're gonna press him on and hold him accountable to support him when he's right and. Uh, oppose him when he's wrong. And that's going to be a real test when we have such a sort of emotional, sort of uh, affinity-driven uh, politics right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I, I think this goes to the heart of why the end campaign is important. Because on both sides, you have these kind of decisions. Uh, as you know, and Chris, I know you've experienced it, and I think you made a different decision, and I'll forever commend you for that. But on the Democratic side of things, you don't you're not given a choice. Right. They, they send you they ask you where you stand. And if you give the wrong answer, it's over. Right. Yeah. That, that's it. So you're not really given a choice. And today in the Republican Party, that's Trump. Right. As a Republican, you're not given a choice on whether you support Trump or not. Either you do or, you, you know, they're going to do their best to take you out. And so you've seen a lot of Republicans who I don't think have a lot of respect for Trump, who I don't think agree with Trump on a lot of things. But they've said, you know what? I want to stay in the game. I want, I want to, I want to make sure that I'm here when Trump is gone. I want to be able to do something later. So I'm just going to uh, hold my nose and say I support Trump. Um, I think that is problematic, and I also think it's problematic when Democrats would endorse the entire agenda from the Democratic Party right now, which is a very extreme ag agenda when it comes to abortion without any qualification. 
Mm-hmm. And I think someone like uh, uh, Reverend Warnock, Dr. Warnock, is in a position to say, you know, I'm not going to do that this time. If you want me to run, if you want to have a chance with me, I've already put my name out there. People already know me. You're going to have to do it on my terms. And I think the stance that could have been taken to Mike, to Michael's point, though, it seems as if this is a stance that he's saying he was he is already taking. Right. right? He's saying right. that I've, I've always been here, although I know, well, we won't get too deep into that. Yeah. That's, that's not what's, been said, what's being said right now, which goes in a whole different conversation and, and you know, thought that we've had about kind of more progressive the- theology, which to me always finds a way to make s- secular progressivism work, even as secular progressivism changes uh, day by day. Somehow the theology always seems to fit that in there. But it's really problematic because the AND campaign, we talk about the witness being more important than the win, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, you can win. You say, well, I just had to say I- I'm okay with abortion to win. But when you're a faith leader, when you have people listening to you and saying, this is what Christian civic engagement is supposed to supposed to look like and you make a statement even as somebody who has more pro- progressive theology to make a statement with no qualifications right I, I don't even think you have to be a christian to see that there's a problem with where the democratic party is going uh, when it comes to abortion and so to just say well i want to run i'm you know i want to get out there and have an article put out there to state your position so nobody has any worries about it and not have any qualifications from a leadership position i think that's i think that's uh uh, really unfortunate, um, and and I would I would like to see someone tell him, and I'll be pushing that. Somebody tells like, no, you need to you need to touch on that a little more. You need to talk through that. You're already the guy they told you. And guess what, Christian? Whether you're a Democrat or you're a Republican, there's some endorsements you don't need. Yeah. Right? Every endorsement is a good endorsement. There's some endorsements you shouldn't ask for, and maybe they know before they come to you, you don't need their endorsement, so they can go to somebody else. And especially in this time in the campaign when there's really nobody else running against them that's a Democrat. He's in a jungle primary, so he's going against you know everybody kind of together. He doesn't necessarily even need that. Now, there's money that comes with it in other conversations, but he's even more in a position than just a random person who would be running to say, no, I'm not going to go that far on it. There's, I, I have a certain perspective on it. And even if I agree with you to an extent, I need to explain that, right? I need, I need to make sure that that's thorough. So when the whole article comes out and there's no question, this is like, hey, I'm with you guys. It's all good. Don't worry about me on this issue. I found that to be problematic, man. And this, something tells me this won't be the last time we have that conversation. We're going to talk about leftless issues. We're not telling you who to vote for. We're going to talk about leftless issues. We're going to talk about everybody in the racist issues. But as a Christian and someone who's a leader, that's a conversation that needs to be more thoughtful. That's something uh, when you have a flock and, and you have people all over the state and the nation who look to you, not based on you being a, a politician, but based on you being a man of God, there's yeah. questions that you have to answer and ways that you have, have to approach it. Any other commentary or thoughts, Chris? Yeah, I, I would just say that as a person who has experienced that pressure personally, it's just so unfortunate to see the opportunity go to waste, Justin, like, like you set it up, I, I kind of was that random person, right? Um, who didn't have a lot of leverage uh, with the party, but here's somebody who does have a ton of leverage uh, with the party, um, you know, cause you know, the, those, those packs, they do carry a lot of weight in the party, but are they gonna go find somebody and beat you with, those, with that person? Probably not in this case. Um, and, and so there's a ton of leverage right here uh, just to have a more nuanced uh, conversation. You're not talking about go pick up, you know, the, the Republican line, right? 
it, there's an opportunity to to have the conversation that really needs to be had. That that honestly, because the the sides are so locked into their kind of crazy polarized positions, the real conversation that 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 I've had also as a pastor, like with 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 young women, the that conversation never happens in the public domain. Um, and and that's the that is the conversation that we actually need to have. And 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 this was an opportunity to do that to have a nuanced, thoughtful conversation that's not about controlling uh, a woman's choice or or or, or, or rights, but, but really weighing through the, the very difficult kind of uh, moral situation and the policies that, that need to drive toward the particular outcome of making abortion rare. Because I think that's the goal, right? Make it, make it rare, make it so that it doesn't happen. Uh, and, and I think there's, there's healthy debate around whether a lot of laws of just simply outlawing and criminalizing abortion w- without, you know, other elements of public policy accomplish that goal. That that's a real conversation that, that Democrats could really bring to the table. And it's a great opportunity to do it. And as somebody who's been like in that room personally, it was is just so unfortunate to to think that an opportunity like this would, would go to waste. Michael? Yeah, I mean not you, you know we just may uh, need to come to terms with the fact that he, he he's not interested in that converse in a more nuanced conversation, you know, like, the, 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 like he may, he may just, and, and then, and then there's just a policy uh, disagreement that, that, you know, that can't be, that can't necessarily be bridged. I mean, I'm sure there are, there are policies, like you said, Chris, that we'd agree on that would uh, help get towards the goal, but there may just be a fundamental uh, disagreement about the, about the issue at hand. Uh, and then you know, I just say you know, uh, it's it's it seems like Democrats are going to keep on trying to win in states like Georgia and Texas. In Texas, they ran uh, or Wendy Davis. Uh, in Georgia, they've run some some candidates who make a, a make a bunch of compromises on economics. They'll be they'll be friendly with all all kinds of business interests in a state like Georgia or a state like Texas, but on uh, an issue like abortion, there's no there's no moderation at all, and you know these candidates keep on losing. And what's going to happen is that at some point, one of these candidates is going to is going to win, uh, and they're going to say, "Look, we have the right strategy." And, and, and I would just say, like, no, maybe 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 you would have won three cycles ago if you had been recruiting different kinds of of candidates. But I mean, th- that's. That's what we're going to see. Georgia is going to be more hotly contested, I think, um, in in 2020 than certainly any other presidential cycle year, and potentially even more than uh, than the Abrams race. And we'll, we'll just we'll just have to see how the how the dynamics shake up, how big of an issue, uh, you, you know, to what extent Warnock is is prepared to navigate faith issues politically, which is very different from navigating them as a pastor, navigating them in, in what is admittedly a very political environment at Ebenezer and very complex, but it's different when you're when you're running to represent folks. And it'll be it'll be interesting to say the least to see them navigate some of these issues. Yeah. And and for those of you who hopefully will read our book, Compassion and Con- Conviction, it's the end campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement. Two months from today. Two months, Two months from today, exactly. One of the things we want to do is tell you how remiss Christians are when we decide to be just a generic Republican or generic Democrat. 
Um, when we decide that we're just going to go along with the party because we got to get in this position and it's a hard choice, but I got to get there. Uh, we, I want, you know, one of my goals is to let Christians see that to be a generic Democrat or Republican, it's just not where it's at. That's played out. And really, if, you, if that's what you're going to be, then we can just vote anybody in there. I mean, to, to, to stand on the fact that you're Christian and um, coming from a certain a demographic, which is a lot of uh, socially conservative uh, black Christians, and then not take a more thoughtful position than that, again, is just really unfortunate. And I hope that this is being heard because there still is time to say, you know what, let me address that a little bit differently. I, I think Mike might be, Michael might be right. There may be no desire to do that. But people can make the desire to do that, right? The, the, right. If, you, if, uh, if the people say, nah, that I don't, I didn't, you know, I hope I didn't hear that, right? Why don't you explain that a little more, uh, elaborate for me? The candidates very quickly say, well, no, what I meant was this or that. And so uh, I think you're right. I think the whole point of that article probably was to say it, get it out the way, and not have to really focus on that anymore. But here's another thing that we've been talking about quite a bit, guys, which is that because Trump has impacted our nation so much, because there's, such a divide. One of the things that I think is going to happen from folks on the further on the left is they're going to kind of they they I think they see this as an opportunity to push more extreme policy and then hide it behind Trump, yeah, right? So true. if you look at so if you look at what Warnock says in the in the article, he's you know he he says I'm a proponent. He puts all that out there, then you go right back to Trump. Well, this article didn't have anything to do with Trump. If if you want to have an you know if there's going to be an article on your stance on pro-choice issues, don't bring Trump into it. We can disagree. We can agree on Trump all day. But what happens is you try to hide uh, your more extreme issue or the issue that, you know, uh, folks in my community may have a problem with behind Trump. Right. So, yeah, I'm taking this position on the Equality Act or abortion. But look, Trump is over there. Right. And so everybody's like, wait. And you get away with kind of kind of putting uh, putting whatever policy prescription you want out there. I want to say this to Christians very quick, clearly. There's a difference between wanting Trump to, to be gone and out of office. And some of us, I'm sure, are, are in that place. There's a difference between that and accepting everything that comes from the secular progressive you know, policy machine. Right. A very clear difference. And if you're going to be a thoughtful uh, voter, if you're going to thoughtfully engage the system, you can't just say, hey, whatever it takes to get him out, I'm good. That is brain dead politics because yeah. there's so much more that's going on behind the scenes. And people know when you just are looking at one thing by itself then you can give up a whole lot of other things. So all we're asking you to do is be thoughtful. I hope that this is a position where somebody can come out and say, okay, let me explain this a little bit more. And the, if the people ask for that to happen, it can happen before the election, right? Uh, but if we kind of just sit back and accept what's given to us, which I think is what's happening here, we put ourselves in a really, a really tough position. So I, I kind of wanted to end on that note, so to speak, but, but disappointed. We'll see what happens because we got a lot of disappointment on the other end. If Leffler actually did take this money the way that she's been supporting Trump really in the same uncritical way. Right. Uh, you, you see, you see kind of a, a mirror effect on that. Uh, this is, this is going to be a tough conversation, but as Christians, let's think through it. And this shows us that, you know, oftentimes we come into the situation where we're thinking, let the politician lead us, let the elected official lead us. No, 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 my friends, you lead them. If they get out of line or they do something they're not supposed to do, you're not there just to support them regardless. Even if you're going to, you, you plan on voting for them at the end of the day. You no, have more of a, right. You have more of an obligation to make sure that they do the right thing. So what I don't want people to do is say Trump is so bad that I'm going to find an excuse or I'm going to ignore anything that comes from a candidate on the left or vice versa. 
right? Uh, Pelosi is so bad that I'm going to do any, you know, I'm, I'm going to ignore anything that comes out about my side. Be thoughtful, because at the end of the day, if the witness, if our witness and who, what we're representing in the public square is more important than us winning, then we've got to care about issues like that. We've got to care about somebody who's a leader in the church, how they, you know, what policies they support and how they put themselves out there. Anything else, Michael? Are you ready to? No, that's good. That's good. I mean, you know, we're on the same page here. And uh, just to reiterate, like, you don't owe these folks anything. They're running to serve you. You don't serve them. You don't serve, unless you're getting paid by the party, you're not serving the party. The party's there to serve you and to be a mediator between you and your fellow citizens, your fellow party members to, 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 to represent you. And so if you're not representing yourself, how is the system ever going to work? And so, yeah, speak up for yourself, for your values. Uh, you don't got to do it in a, in a way that's uh, overly brash or entitled, or any, but you, you do deserve to be heard. You're a citizen. Uh, and so don't throw out your voice because you think you got to you got to cede your voice to the system. No, the system is made up of our voices. And so don't muzzle yourself in that way. That's where we're at. We want to make sure that Christians are bold enough and dignified enough. Right. I mean, the idea that you would hold a conviction and that somebody could come in from the outside and say, no, you can't hold that conviction anymore. I need you to say exactly what I want you to say and that we would go along with that. That's not who we are. Right. Regardless of where we are, we're supposed to be cross bearing. And I'll just leave you with that. Thank yeah. you all for joining us. Uh, we love you guys. This will be on our, our podcast where you normally find it. If you want to check up on it again, tell some folks about it. Sister Carla, we greatly appreciate you. Uh, I see uh, Matthew Barcode joined us. We appreciate everybody that joined us. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in and we will be back. So thank you for your time. Again, this was another Church Politics Podcast. We will see you next week. Take care. This is the groove. Tell me, I'm scolding the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fame. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.